Welcome back guys to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. I'm your host as always, Adam MacDonald, and in today's episode I have on with me Jackson Pios for episode number 21. Jackson is currently a PhD researcher working at the University of Western Australia. He has multiple other qualifications. He's a registered sports nutritionist and has worked with hundreds of people in sports and also in physique competitions. He's also been a physique competitor himself. Today we talk all about refeeds and diet breaks and if you are listening to this show please do tag us both on social media on specifically on instagram you can get jackson or tag jackson with at jackson pios p-e-o-s and me it's at adam mac 192 and i hope you enjoy the show but without further ado let's get into this episode with jackson pios so jackson thank you so much for coming on today no problem man happy to be here so for those who, who don't know who you are please uh, introduce yourself Okay, so I am a PhD candidate in Western Australia uh, in clinical and sports nutrition. Um, In terms of my credentials, I have a double major degree in sports science and exercise and health. And I also have an honours degree in exercise physiology. I'm an accredited sports nutrition and I do most of my work either running research studies out of the lab um, at University of Western Australia or working as, as a remote sports nutritionist. Um, and I've worked with a number of sort of physique athletes in the past and strength athletes, but now I'm starting to gravitate a little more towards the sport, sports athletes. So uh, the combat fighters, the boxers who need to make weight uh, for their fights, uh, uh, football players, rugby players, rowers, uh, they're, they're sort of sort of more of the demographic that I've been working with uh, just recently. In terms of the research that I'm doing um, at UWA, I predominantly focus on intermittent dieting. So basically that encompasses things like refeeds and diet breaks. And I'm actually running the biggest weight loss study that's that's ever happened um, in Australia to date. All the data is completed. I'm actually just putting together the manuscript get it published and what we investigated was comparing a traditional dieting approach which we call continuous energy restriction which is just basically being in a calorie deficit for every day of the weight loss phase and we compared that to intermittent energy restriction where we gave the participants one week diet breaks where we increased their calories up to maintenance and that happened after every three weeks of dieting and basically we matched the two groups after equal time dieting and then we compared things like changes in fat mass, fat-free mass, metabolic rate, hormonal parameters, muscle performance. It's it's a huge study and, and I can't wait to, to get that one uh, published shortly. Yeah, that, that's very interesting and um, I, I know that you, you mentioned that you have or you work with uh, athletes in sports specifically but uh, you you work uh, with JPS Health as well, right? And and um, working with bodybuilders or physique athletes, and you've competed in in physique sports yourself, or bodybuilding or, or men's physique, one of those, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I've done men's physique uh, with both natural bodybuilding and with the IFBB. Nice. And yeah, so today we really wanted to dig into that topic of intermittent dieting, and um, I, I guess it's a bit of a new-ish uh, term. Uh, or or strategy uh, i believe that like you back in the day in bodybuilding like 
you know when in the 80s or 90s or even even more recently it was more people would follow a specific diet whether that was a meal plan and then have like a cheat meal or something like that to boost their metabolism or this is what it was they believed it had it was doing um and, and then i guess when people started to follow macronutrients a bit more and be a bit more flexible um i think at a similar time refeeds became a little bit more popular uh, single day refeeds so having increasing carbohydrates for, for one day or else doing that for multiple days but what specifically is the difference between that and intermittent dieting yeah so um i'll just go back to it a little bit to where you started so you are correct in in that intermittent dieting is relatively new um, and i feel like some in the evidence-based community might not agree with that and they might think that sort of this it's this tried and true practice that's been around for many years and the bodybuilders are using tri- using cheat days and then for years everyone's been using sort of one or two day refeeds each week but when you actually look at it in a research context 99% of the research in the intermittent dieting realm has focused on individuals with overweight or obesity um, and who are sedentary. Now, what that often means is that the, the diets that they're fed are typically uh, suboptimal for the demands of a physique athlete, for example, low in protein, high in fat, um, typically sort of um, not what we consider a physique conducive conducive diet uh, we know they're not weight training so that has implications for the balance of fat mass and fat free mass that's lost uh, during dieting so we're fairly limited in making applications from the body of research that we have in intermittent dieting at the moment despite everyone thinking that there's that there's so much research behind it uh, up, in, up until the last 12 months uh, it was there was actually no published studies on intermittent dieting whether that be refeeds or diet breaks in any sort of athlete population and it's only now that we've just had the double day refeed study published by bill campbell's lab and uh, my study with the diet break study which will be published uh, sometime this year they're sort of the first two studies that have even looked at this practice uh, in weight training athletes so uh, yes it has been around for some time but there's very little research support um, for it in in the context of athletes. Now, going on to your, your next point in sort of what's the difference between intermittent dieting being used today versus sort of your binge day bodybuilder, sort of ice cream sundae and three cheeseburgers once a week during contest prep. So by definition, intermittent dieting involves a cycling between energy restriction, so a calorie deficit, and energy balance now energy balance just means eating enough to maintain your body weight so when we look at intermittent dieting protocols in the literature whether that's refeeds or diet breaks what we're trying to do is lift their calorie intake for whether one two seven fourteen days up to their their maintenance requirements or as close to their maintenance requirements as we can get because we're fairly confident that if a large calorie surplus is established during those diet breaks or or refeeds what's just going to happen is that it's going to be accompanied by an accumulation of body fat that's probably going to outweigh any potential metabolic or hormonal benefits from the refeed or diet break itself because it's just going to result in either a longer duration weight loss phase or, or a more severe weight loss phase in the final stages to get to that desired body composition 
Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me with a traditional kind of uh, cheat day. I remember when I was like maybe 15 or so um, in the gym, uh, there was this huge bodybuilder and he used to tell me about this keto diet um, <laughs> that at the week, I, I, maybe it was cyclical ketogenic diet, I think. Um, where <laughs> so not I, even I, keto. <laughs> no, I, I don't really know if that even you know you're you're spending half the week not in ketosis because you exactly. so much. but he used, he used to tell me that on the weekends like you can eat I, he was probably like around 40 and i was literally about 15 he used to tell me that um oh you can whatever you want on the weekends you can eat beer chocolate cakes and like what the, and this guy was he was massive so like i just thought that, that was you know correct i don't think i did yeah. that i don't wasn't old enough to even drink beer at the time but um <laughs> it sounded sound, sound pretty interesting but yeah so i guess the the idea behind at least having some form of surplus of calories um, to, to offset or to negate some of the, the, the effects of dieting um, still does make sense. So what do we actually see from, you know, uh, continuous energy restriction or or just from a, uh, a purely from a dieting perspective, especially when people are dieting for longer, getting leaner, what are some of the adaptations that we do see that are potentially negative for those who want to maintain maximum muscle? Yeah, so so there's a whole host of changes that occur. So I'll, I'll just try and group them into sort of broad categories. So on one hand, we we have changes in in metabolism, and usually what that means is a reduction in our resting energy expenditure. So we bought we burn less calories during rest as we progress through the weight loss phase. Um, it's also accompanied by a decrease in um, non-activity energy expenditure, sorry, non, sorry, um, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is basically just the calories that we burn, sort of fidgeting and sort of unconsciously uh, walking around, hopping more, moving more. Um, they tend to decrease as well, and we get decreases in physical activity energy expenditure, uh, which is basically we're going to burn less calories uh, during movement, during exercise largely due to the reduced body mass, which means there's less of an energy cost for locomotion. And we get a small decrease in, in dietary-induced thermogenesis purely from consuming less calories and there being a less calorie demand to process what we ingest. So basically all components of what we broadly refer to as metabolism decrease. And what that means is the, the calorie deficit that was potentially estab established at week one of the diet is not going to be the same magnitude of deficit at, at week six of the diet because that metabolic adaptation has, take, has taken place. We also see <clears throat> changes in hormonal profiles. And, and the ones that I like to focus on most is, is the appetite-regulating hormones because I feel like they're the most significant sort of influences of weight loss success in reality. So the, the ones I like to refer to most is leptin, ghrelin, and PYY. Leptin and PYY are satiety hormones, so they regulate satiety. When we have high levels of them, we're more satiated. And ghrelin is a hunger hormone, so when we have more of it, we feel more hungry. And as we progress through a diet, usually what we see is we see a decrease in circulating concentrations of leptin and PYY. Uh, after all, leptin is produced primarily from fat cells, so we have less fat cells, we're going to produce less leptin. And we also tend to see an increase in ghrelin levels. And collectively, what this means is we have this increased drive to eat. So when we couple that with the reductions in metabolism that are occurring, 
we're burning less calories at rest and during activity, but we've got more pressure on us to consume more calories. And basically that's just um, a collective pressure to try and remove the energy deficit that exists to try and sort of push us back up to our, our set point body weight and body fat. Now, obviously in, in lean participants and physique competitors and guys like that, you get some unique adaptations that, that sort of aren't really going to apply unless you're sub sort of 10% body fat for a male. And what they include is, is losses of fat-free mass, um, obviously performance impairments. And, and that's one of the reasons why we're fairly limited in making applications from the intermittent dieting research in overweight and obesity was just because they're, they're not weight training and we have no idea what's happening to um, the performance during that time. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to examine performance in one of my recent studies. And um, without giving too much away, um, just with seven day diet break, um, it does look like we're starting to see um, a fairly significant uptrend in muscle endurance performance, at least in the, in the quadriceps um, and hamstrings. Strength performance seems to, seems to be less significant um, and it doesn't seem to be as receptive to um, the increase in calories. Um, and then just finally, obviously, we have the, the psychological adaptations that occur um, during weight loss. And, and largely, I think they're due to sort of the changes in the appetite regulating hormones that are sort of giving us sort of these more recurrent hunger urges. And we have this pressure to battle these hunger urges. Um, and what's that, what that's essentially resulting in is, is more disruption to the person. And, and in one of my recent studies, which hasn't been published yet, um, that has been supported by, um, we measured irritability and alertness during, um, during the interventions and during the diet break. And, and what we actually see is this increase in irritability and decrease in alertness that accumulates during the, the weight loss phase. But once you give them a diet break, alertness starts to improve, irritability starts to drop, which tells me that sort of these negative psychological effects are, are mostly as a result of just having to battle these constant hunger urges all the time. Yeah, and it's pretty interesting you say that, like a lot of the research in obese um, and overweight people, we can't really translate that to physique athletes. And, and I guess if someone's not training and they're obese, the any new training stimulus or or even any kind of training stimulus at all will will elicit also growth even in a calorie deficit because of that that new stimulus but also because the excess amount of energy that they have stored to produce that um or, or to, to build muscle so i think when we're, we're talking about physique athletes um one of the things that i'm thinking about is we often have a time frame with the general population or obese or overweight it's it's typically to feel good or to to get into better health status and that doesn't necessarily have to have a a 20 week time frame or else you're going to you know be off or you're going you're not going to place well in the bodybuilding show where in competition prep you know some people can you know diet for up to eight months or whatever it is that's i think how long i died for um but people have to factor in that if you're not going to be in a calorie deficit right um is that going to offset the progress that it could potentially make uh within that same period of time mm. yeah it's a good point um um in terms of like i i just following on from that point because i think it's a worthwhile discussion in terms of my analysis of the diet break 
sort of the intermittent versus the continuous dieting over 15 weeks sort of so comparing a large block of continuous dieting chronically versus a large block of intermittent dieting uh, do we think that those short-term bouts of sort of increasing calories are going to increase or are going to improve the basically the macro outcomes let's say if that was 15 weeks into a contest prep versus if we didn't do any any refeeds or, or diet breaks i'm unsure um, looking at the results um, of my data so when we look at measurement immediately before and immediately after the diet break so taking it day zero and day seven of the diet break what we're actually seeing is increases in fat-free mass increases in resting energy expenditure increases in muscle endurance reduced drive to eat um, decreased irritability increased alertness like all really really positive things that if you looked at that in isolation you'd say oh my gosh intermittent dieting is going to be so much better on the end result compared to continuous dieting but when i when i map that out over 15 weeks it just doesn't look like those differences, although they're, they're increasing from day zero to day, they're changing from day zero to day seven. It seems to me that once the calorie deficit is reestablished after the diet break, they tend to sort of resort back to where they were really quite quickly. Um, and when I map it over 15 weeks, comparing it to continuous dieting, um, the, the results, sort of the, the macro, the end results just aren't that different. And, and aren't as exciting as when we just look at the acute data yeah and, and i guess it's probably unfair to to say well if i'm gonna do a contest prep for let's say 20 weeks is 16 or 12 maybe a bit short but let's say 20 weeks it would be unfair to say let's compare continuous energy restriction to a, a, a contest prep or a dieting phase that also has a couple of weeks thrown in there where you're essentially not making any fat loss progress. So what would be, uh, what would, what is the protocol that you guys looked at? Is it a one week diet, one week surplus, or one week diet, one week um, back of the maintenance, or, or do you do this cyclically in a month based style every five weeks, every six weeks? Yep, so we did. So the intermittent group had to accumulate 12 deficit weeks, but they had a one week diet break after every three weeks of dieting. So it was basically three on, one off, three on, one off, three on, one off, if that makes sense. And then you compare yeah. that to a continuous dieting group who just got no breaks, they just did zero to 12 straight up. So, so yeah, I, yes, yes, the intermittent group had to technically diet for longer because they had the diet breaks thrown in and their intervention was 15 weeks long, but they, had, they accumulated the same number of dieting weeks. Yep, yeah. and and how would you translate that uh, to a contest prep? So, like I mentioned, um, if you're going to do this in a in a dieting phase for a contest bodybuilding show, or or you just want to get to quite lean levels of body fat, whether it's a photo shoot or something like that, would you would that mean that you would then extend the the dieting period to allow for those periods where you've actually been in a calorie uh, maintenance? So, what I'm saying is. Let's say you do it twenty five percent of the of the weeks, or one in four, um, or one in three, are in a surplus. Would you then extend the calorie, or would you extend the actual length of the diet by twenty five percent? And in that case, do you think you'd you'd see more positive results in terms of 
ultimately more muscle mass uh, maintained because at the end of the diet if you're extremely lean you're probably going to feel pretty crappy anyway uh, psychologically and physically but do you think that there would be more muscle mass maintained at the end of that um i think you absolutely have to let's say you you've calculated that you've got a fixed amount of weight to lose before you're roughly in contest shape and that's going to take you if you average it out maybe let's say 16 dieting weeks if you give a little bit of room up your sleeve you will then have to add additionally um put on top the the diet break week so if you wanted to do 16 if you if you needed to lose a certain amount of weight in 16 weeks to be contest ready and you wanted to do four diet breaks you by definition you'd want to be doing 20 a 20 week prep because uh, i think it's i can almost say with complete conviction that the diet breaks aren't going to speed up the fat loss in like consecutive weeks like it's not going to make you be able to do, to achieve the same results in less dieting time if that makes sense um got, got you yeah so i think you absolutely have to have to add um the diet breaks in addition to however many uh deficit weeks you need to accumulate um the desired sort of body body fat loss or, or body weight loss but in terms of do i think um it's going to lead to greater fat free mass at the end of the prep um like uh, all i've got to go on is my my data that i have and like without sort of blowing smoke it was a really well controlled study we had we had 61 participants uh basically 30 in each group who started the study um, we monitored them very, very closely. They're in an athlete population where adherence is typically quite good compared to, to overweight population. So I have relative trust in sort of the self-reporting data in, in terms of calorie intake and, and things like that. These were all experienced guys with use of my fitness power and, and things like that. Um, but when I compare it to the continuous energy restriction, um, the the fat-free mass differences are extremely underwhelming. Um, so I would basically say if what I am confident in is that the, that the diet breaks do provide psychological relief. So in terms of whether making the decision whether you should use diet breaks or refeeds or not, I would ask yourself um, which is the better option, either dieting for a shorter amount of time and potentially having more psychological disturbance or dieting for a greater amount of time but potentially sort of it being a little bit easier during that time so if if you've got time up your sleeve maybe most of you would say okay well i'd rather sort of feel a little bit better during my diet i'll i'll sort of i'll cop the extra four or five weeks um but if you just sort of want to get in and get out in the minimum amount of time and sort of then get back to massing or off season or whatever you want to do um then i'd probably suggest just going with the, the continuous energy restriction yeah that makes a lot of sense and i mean i think that's probably one of the reasons why uh people would extend or, or in recent years especially in natural bodybuilding uh, contest preps have been extended not just to not just to try and offset any additional or slow down muscle uh, loss, but also to to actually 
make it less psychologically stressful because at the end of the day what's the point in just doing this if you're just going to torture yourself for you know 12 weeks you're, you're doing this because you're purposely choosing to do it not because you're in a you know concentration camp or something like that where you have to diet so it makes sense to try and make this as easy as possible so that you're just not an asshole or uh, you can live your normal life like nobody no i don't know any natural bodybuilders that are getting paid just to do bodybuilding um so I think that makes total sense. But if you were to compare that, let's say, and I know this is this is definitely very hypothetical, but just based off of what you, what your research and your your also experience working with people, if one was to do say extend that period of, of dieting uh, to to allow for those um, extra weeks um, where we can have higher calories, do you think that if you actually just extended it and maybe just made the deficit less, so just continuous restriction and, and then made it the the actual deficit just continuous but but less restrictive or less of a calorie deficit but just extended that dieting period and then compared that to someone who has uh, also the same amount of time 20 weeks uh, but but perhaps the the, the the dieting weeks are a little bit harsher or more of a calorie restriction but then we do have those periods of um of maintenance calories do you think that there'll be any differences there in terms of the the outcome from psychological point of view or just ease of dieting i think yes to a point like like when we look at the research on rates of weight loss during dieting um there's been a number of studies which have shown inferior outcomes using a faster rate of weight loss per week compared to a slower rate of weight loss per week um, but like I said, it's up to a point. So generally what I recommend is, is between 0.5 to 1% of your body weight losses per week during the dieting phase. Um, and that would apply to a prep as well. Uh, you go a little bit faster at the start, so closer to that 1% of your body weight per week uh, at the start because you've got that protective effect of body fat at that point where you're just not really at any risk of sort of significant hormonal alterations or losses of fat-free mass and then as you sort of accumulate the body fat losses you start slowing down your week-to-week target of weekly weight loss but if you're going if we say okay um let's say they were under normal conditions dieting themselves away at sort of 0.6 percent body weight losses per week and then you propose that hang on a minute how about if we slow things down we have to diet a little bit longer uh, but the rate of weight loss will be slower and will there potentially be sort of positive effects of that? That um, I'm unsure. I would I would say probably no. I'd say if you went below 0.5% body weight losses per week, it's just you're just going to have to diet so damn long to get anywhere. Um, and one of the, the biggest motivators when you look at sort of research on obese and, and overweight individuals in weight loss studies one of the biggest motivators for them is seeing week-to-week movements in scale weight which is why in in previously very low energy diets for for people with obesity have been so effective so these are massive calorie deficits but because they see these massive changes on the scale each week it sort of drives their motivation for for compliance and they tend to be more effective than giving someone with overweight or obesity a slower rate of weight loss where they typically sort of, they diet for four weeks, they still have to exert some restraint, and then after the four weeks they can't really see any changes and then they sort of fall off the plan. So if we if we contrast that to what you are proposing, if you go below 0.5% of your body weight losses per week, I just think you're, you're still 
going to feel the negative consequences of an energy deficit and being lower than your set point body fat. And I'm fearful of the negative result of that is that you're just going to be spending a longer amount of time feeling shitty, albeit sort of with a reduced uh, calorie deficit than what you were on before. I think potentially, um, and it's probably going to vary on an individual basis based on preference, but I think in, in that scenario, it, it might be better just to sort of stay where you were at that 0.6% um, as long as you, you're sort of at a reasonable rate of weight loss per week already. Just stick with that and then sort of save yourself two or three weeks of having to sort of spend your time feeling a bit shitty with a with a lean body comp. Yeah, and I think it's it's actually kind of difficult to separate the, the negative effects of a calorie deficit or being at low body fat when you're dieting because they they come part and parcel they come together so it's hard to say well it's because i'm low body fat because you're also in a calorie deficit so that that does make sense and i i actually noticed that myself i don't think it's just with obese people and you'll, you'll probably agree with me here that um when you're dieting to get into you know relatively lean or very lean uh levels of body fat that that you you do see that that is a motivating factor initially the scale weight but then as you get leaner it, you see visual differences almost every every day definitely every week and i think my last competition prep which was 2019 but I, I did my first show in july and then my last show was in november just because i'd qualified for the the, the worlds or whatever and and then just wanted to do it but between that period was like very i was very demotivated because i i didn't see a whole lot of progress because i was already pretty much in in contest shape and yeah there's periods where i like ate more food and you know tried to bump up a few pounds of fat but at that point i've kind of you know i'd spent a long time dieting i wasn't motivated i wasn't really seeing much visual progress and actually to be honest i, I probably lost a bit of muscle and that's probably tied to being very lean but also just a lack of motivation to, to train very hard and to mm-hmm. kind of go there and dig deep when you, you're not really seeing any additional progress you're just kind of holding progress and and kind of resonate with the, the people who are overweight who don't have a kind of experience or any kind of reference points with previous dieting that you know when weight loss does they just kind of lose motivation mm-hmm. um so how do you compare then um an intermittent week of or intermittent dieting, so a week of a surplus, or a, sorry, a maintenance calories versus what we've kind of traditionally seen, I suppose more in the the evidence based, uh, with say single day or multi day refeeds, like two two day refeeds. Um, would you say you'd see similar effects to that? Um, so it is a good question, and I don't really have a solid answer yet. Uh, so. The, basically, the most conclusive data we had in the intermittent dieting realm was published by my supervisor, Amanda Salas, and it was a diet break study that used 14-day diet breaks, and they saw superior maintenance and metabolic rate and better fat loss in the group who used the 14-day diet breaks versus the group that just continuously dieted the whole time. We don't have, we didn't at that point in time have any research sort of showing uh, positive outcomes using single or, or double day refeeds, despite the prevalent use in sort of the athletic community. So when I was designing my study, I sort of had to go on the research that we have at hand and not sort of speculate so much based on what's being used. And I thought if I was going to, when 
if I was going to set out to design a study which hopefully would have a significant finding, it would be in my best interest to go with a protocol that was more similar to the existing research versus a protocol that was very dissimilar to the existing research and then potentially have um, no significant effects. So I decided to sort of go somewhere in the middle and go with a seven-day diet break um, to see if we could sort of match the same benefits that were seen with the 14-day diet break. Now, since then, we've had Bill Campbell's lab come out and publish the double-day refeed study. And as far as I'm aware, that's the only study that's looked at either single or, or double-day refeeds to date. Now, they... They, they concluded that double-day refeeds may retain more fat-free mass, dry fat-free mass, and metabolic rate compared to continuous dieting. Um, I actually have some issues with this study because when I interpret the data that they've provided, I don't arrive at the same conclusions uh, that have been made in the paper. There's, um, there's one group-by-time interaction that's significant, and that is for dry fat-free mass, and there's no significant group time interactions for fat-free mass or um, or metabolic rate. So therefore, I don't understand how they could therefore state that um, that double-day refeeds retain more fat-free mass, dry fat-free mass, and metabolic rate. I think that's a uh, an incorrect interpretation um, of the results and I've actually looked at their raw data um, and I analyzed it using uh, what I consider to be a robust statistical um, model and that's an analysis of covariance using the baseline values as a covariate and again um, with my analysis of that data I didn't see any significant differences between groups in the change in metabolic rate or the change in fat-free mass, which which tells me that the that the finding um, isn't very robust, even if it if they have identified some significance using their mo their model. Um, so if you are using double-day refeeds with the expectation that they're going to maintain your metabolic rate or um, your fat-free mass, I would be I'd be a little skeptical of that study, and I'd at least wait till we can see some more studies done in, in a similar area or on a similar protocol. Yeah, I think when I looked at it, um, what I noticed was that the when they actually checked for fat-free mass, those who have a higher carbohydrate or have consumed higher carbohydrates within proximity of, of getting their their body composition tested, they're going to have more lean mass, right? Um, Absolutely. I, I, yeah, have a, but, I have a major issue with that as well because all it says in the, the methods is that the final analysis occurred two days after the final diet break, which also means it was two days after completion of the study. So what happened? What did they do with their diet after the two days of the diet break? Did they go back into a calorie deficit? Because if they didn't and they just ate ad libitum, it's actually going to mean you're measuring on the back of a four-day sort of refeed and I just don't think that that uh, makes sense. Mm. Uh, yeah, but I think in, in practical terms though, nonetheless, uh, I've, I've done multiple competition preps and I know that, f f and like you mentioned, we have a bit more um, robust 
information on how it affects us psychologically and i think from for myself and working with clients who've, who've done preps that uh, regardless if it's going to maintain or it's going to lead to maintenance of more lean muscle mass at the end of the day i think that some form of refeed or increasing calories it's going to be beneficial for just overall psychological effect you know having not feeling like you're digging for 20 weeks or 16 weeks but at least saying okay well i've got three more days that are pretty tough but you know on saturday i can go and have a a meal with my family or my girlfriend or whatever that's like double the carbohydrates or i'm not going to feel like crap for at least two days or something like that what are your thoughts about that yeah i i agree with that absolutely completely so what would your practical applications then be from what you've research now if you were to set up a prep for somebody would you be hesitant or, or would this be something that you would immediately implement extending that diet adding in um you know multiple days or even a, up to a week of uh, maintenance calories and and you know in order to get them into the best shape possible what what would your thoughts be and how, how would you practically apply this yeah so i'm i'm far more hesitant about prescribing diet breaks and refeeds than I was sort of six months ago once I've had a good analysis um, of the data for my study. So in terms of whether I'll prescribe them or not, one of the findings for uh, my diet break study was that it seems to be that using diet breaks suppresses overall hunger during the, the total intervention and that was shown by um, not only reduced hunger but increases in scores for satisfaction fullness and a decrease in uh, drive to eat so what that tells me is that um, intermittent dieting if, you, if you're sort of using refeeds quite regularly it might be an adherence tool because you're not going to be getting as severe hunger urges that are sort of threatening your ability to stay on plan um, and you contrast that to, to continuous dieting, it looks like it becomes a lot more difficult to, to manga, ma- manage hunger because it's just sort of really starting to push up quite high. So in terms of whether I'd prescribe it or not, I would ask my clients whether they would prefer to diet a little bit shorter but potentially have higher hunger during that time or diet for a little bit longer but have more manageable hunger, less sort of less uh, greater fullness, greater satiety um, during the protocol. Um, and sometimes clients will be like, yeah, I, I just really don't want to feel as hungry. I'll take the extra four weeks. Some people just say, okay, I just want to get in and out. I can deal with the hunger. I just want to get it done, get the weight off. And and so it seems to be a sort of a divergent opinion based on what clients uh, prefer. Um, in terms of whether I prefer for refeeds or diet breaks. Um, I'm going to say diet breaks just because I haven't seen any data yet to suggest that um, refeeds uh, have, although it, although it seems completely rational, I haven't seen any research yet to say that uh, single or double day refeeds improve any sort of psychological markers or, or scores for hunger or, or fullness or anything like, like that, whereas I have seen those positive um, indicators I just discussed before, like alertness, irritability, hunger, satisfaction. Those things tend to be improved uh, using seven-day diet breaks. So at the moment, um, I'm using 
seven-day diet breaks more often than refeeds. In some contest prep um, competitors, physique athletes, when we don't have a lot of time up our sleeve, so let's say we're six, seven, eight weeks out and we don't have the luxury of sort of going into seven um, days of energy balance, then uh, I'll, I'll sort of default to one or two-day refeeds depending on what sort of condition we're in. Sure, and that kind of leads us into a good segue into something else that you're you're working on uh, that we talked about off air. But before we do, I just have a, a quick question for you. This is something I've thought about before, and you mentioned to me before we start uh, hitting record that you've you've experienced with uh, natural body bodybuilding, but also IFBB IFBB bodybuilding. Do you think that um, let's say an on this in assisted bodybuilding, so those are used like anabolics, that dieting is any different other than perhaps more maintenance or even growth of, of lean mass um or, or um, muscle mass but i've heard just and this is anecdotally i've heard you know bodybuilders who are um say assisted tell me oh it's harder to diet when you're using anabolics and just just thrown out there you know just complete anecdote do you think that there, there that there's any truth to that that it's actually more difficult to diet when you're using anabolics you see would we see any differences here the psychological aspect i assume would be almost identical if not the same and um, but what are your thoughts on that yeah that that's a tough one uh i don't know i'm just trying to think logically like i can assume that potentially um using like we know that um anabolic steroid abuse is associated with substantial psychological disruption um when sort of hormones get out of balance um things like more irritability less focus, um, poor sleep, uh, not, not being out like insomnia and things like that. I just wonder if it's not actually a byproduct of the dieting itself while being on anabolics. It's more so just being on sort of the highest doses of, of anabolics, which people typically use leading into a contest prep. I just wonder if some of that is sort of exaggerating the negative outcomes of the, of the dieting um that they think is uh, is happening um but on the other hand i like i actually think that the dieting could in, in many ways be easier using anabolics because uh like we've just been talking about intermittent dieting and the principles or, or some of the objectives of intermittent dieting like using refeeds and diet breaks is to cause or to reverse the suppression of metabolic rate to hopefully preserve fat-free mass um, to improve hormonal markers like free T3, IGF, um, things like that, which have positive effects on, on lean mass and, and metabolism. And we know that enhanced bodybuilders are using things that can artificially maintain metabolism and can artificially maintain levels of thyroid, levels of IGF, levels of testosterone and, and sort of subsequent fat-free mass. So um, it seems to me like just thinking broadly about it that uh, enhanced bodybuilders have less challenges to face than than non than natural bodybuilders. Mm, yeah, it does make a lot of sense, and I, I get the the psychological impacts of actually taking certain hormones themselves. Um, on a side note, I, I about seven years ago, I used to work in a a supermarket part time when I was doing my undergraduate, and uh, this guy, <laughs> he was studying pharmacology, and he he just got into weightlifting but decided to start using 
<clears throat> Trembolone as well. And uh, <laughs> when you work in a supermarket, you get a lot of people asking you, like, why did you move the jam from this aisle to the other aisle when it actually hadn't moved? And you know, things like <laughs> old, 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 doddery women, you know, asking you, you know, they have dementia onset, etc. And he, he, he used to have to walk away from old women when they'd ask him a stupid question or what he perceived a stupid question because he would get so angry that he didn't want to, he didn't want to be accountable for what would happen if he tried to like, <laughs> if he tried to answer them because he would yeah. get, in, he would get so frustrated and angry that like simple things like that would just, his fuse would just, would just go off straight away. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think definitely talking, um, if you're using those, uh, what we'll call more severe side effects compounds um i think we can confidently say that the per- potential for negative psychological disruption there um is enhanced greatly and I, and those sort of compounds usually the ones with the most um side effects are the ones that people are sort of they have also the most positive effects to a to a contest prep and usually that's sort of mostly when they use not in in the off season as much because you sort of want to give your body a rest and things like that. So I just wonder if, if this reported more difficulty uh, during dieting for enhanced guys is just a byproduct of sort of the compounds that they're using and, and the greater side effects that are accumulating. Yeah, I, I guess it, it's difficult for someone to say to you, oh, dieting as a, as a, uh, an assisted bodybuilder is more difficult but at the same time the the main difference is that they've started using like trembolone which like causes them not to be able to sleep and sweat in the yeah. night and yeah. and get really aggressive so um mm-hmm. but the, moving on to the topic you we mentioned a bit about uh, some of the, some of the work you're doing on satiety and effect on um calorie density foods and how that will affect ad, ad litem uh, dieting so uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into that and then have perhaps how we can apply that to somebody who's uh, going through a dieting phase? Yeah, so I think that hunger management strategies is a hugely underrated area of research and, and certainly underappreciated and, and underused. So I usually if, if we're talking the evidence-based scene or, or sort of talking to fellow physique athletes, when we're discussing satiety strategies, usually where most physique athletes will go is basically oh high, high protein diet you want a high protein diet um but during my last sort of analysis of the satiety research over the last 12 months um it's actually quite clear that 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 a high protein diet is just nowhere near as satiating as a low energy dense diet so low energy dense diet basically means foods that have a large food weight for a small amount of calories so things like uh, broccoli egg whites rock melon um, things of, of that nature where you can sort of get a large amount of volume um, with a small amount of calories so um, I think when we're in the satiety discussions if we're, if we're talking about a satiety hierarchy um, a diet consisting of lots of low energy dense foods which are predominantly fruits and vegetables a diet high in those will be far more satiating than sort of just chucking on an extra chicken breast to your already probably high um, protein, di- protein diet. I think that's um, one, of the, one of the mistakes a lot of physique athletes make during contest prep if they're managing their own diet and hunger is high, um, they might already be on sort of two grams of protein per kilo. Um, hunger's high because they're in a deficit and body fat's low. And they think, how can I make this diet a little bit easier they increase their protein further, which is not going to enhance 
anabolism any further. And then it's also sort of compromising your ability to consume carbohydrates and specifically low energy dense um, forms of carbohydrates were actually more satiating than protein itself on a gram per gram basis. Um, so I think when trying to manage hunger, there should be more emphasis placed on increasing uh, fruits and vegetables in the diet uh, and other low energy dense foods as opposed to increasing protein. Um, just for a bit of context, my, my last diet phase that I did getting ready for my boxing fight, um, I would eat two carrots before three of my meals per day. Um, and, and a large carrot has like 20 calories. And that takes a large chunk of stomach volume um, for 40 calories. Um, and, I, and I just anecdotally, I've noticed um, substantial increases in satiety on a per meal basis. Um, other satiety strategies that I think are, are extremely important and sometimes forgotten is uh, liquids versus solid foods. Um, like I, I know most, most physique competitors, specific the ones that are sort of just getting into the game um, for the sort of in their first couple of years or their first few shows, um, they'll still use protein shakes um, during their contest prep. Um, and the research is extremely clear that, that liquids are far less satiating than solids, even if calories are matched. There's actually a really cool study which uh, tested the effects of satiety on eating a whole chicken breast versus drinking the chicken breast blended with water. Now, you would think, okay, with the extra water, that's going to increase stomach volume. So surely that would mean that the drinking the blended chicken breast would be more satiating. It was actually the opposite. An increase and eating sort of the chicken breast was, was more satiating. So it appears that there was some sort of... Um, what I think is is increased exposure to the oral cavity as you're chewing, but there seems to be some sort of signal between chewing and uh, mechanically digesting, ingesting the foods that, that sort of has a downstream effect on sort of the brain signaling and the satiety, um, satiety response that ensues. So if hunger is high, um, I certainly wouldn't be allocating calories to, towards liquids. Um, another really good one is and this is certainly underrated um is the the viscosity of foods so basically how thick or how liquidy uh, foods are um and just for, for one study for example um they took a pudding and they thickened it so um they i don't know how they did it but they basically added air and whipped it and it increased the volume of the pudding um and it was thicker and they gave it to the participants and all participants were reported greater satiety um, when they had the more thickened, thickened version. And that, that's, been, that's been replicated in other studies which used thickened milkshakes and um, thickened yogurts and things like that. So um, I've trialed things like yogurts before. Um, that I think they're a fantastic satiety food because um, they're highly viscous, um, quite thick, and that they, they tend to have um, an extremely good uh, satiety response. Um, and obviously, um, tying on from the energy-dense sort of argument, if hunger's high, you just don't want to be having a high fat intake. On a per-gram basis, fat is far less satiating than carbohydrates or protein. Um, and I think that this is a misconception because people report 
uh, lower hunger on the ketogenic diet, but that's actually a byproduct of no carbohydrates resulting in ketone production, and the ketones are the things that are suppressing the appetite. So that people are then assuming that dietary fats are effective for um, suppressing appetite, but that only occurs if you're in ketosis, not if you're having a, a decent amount of carbohydrates in the diet. So if you're trying to manage hunger, dietary fat should be very low, so don't be sort of adding avocado to your meals and adding, adding unnecessary olive oil. Assuming you're in a dieting phase and, and hunger is becoming a challenge, you want to be keeping um, fats quite low. Um, I wouldn't be going over 20% of, of your total calories or, or half a gram per kilo um, of your body weight. Now, in terms of where I'm going with that research, I've got a couple of honours students who I'm supervising um, in sort of once the once the coronavirus settles down and we can go back into the lab, we're going to be testing sort of the effects of different composition breakfasts on the satiety response that, that occurs afterwards. So we're going we're gonna to test a number of different breakfasts, like the standard Western breakfast. So that might be like some cereal, milk, and a glass of juice, like a low-protein, high-energy-dense diet. We're going to compare that to a high-protein diet. Um, uh, sorry, a high protein breakfast with high volume. So we're gonna that could be like egg whites with some grilled vegetables. And uh, we're gonna compare that to a high protein, um, high energy dense diet. So that will be like some whole eggs with added olive oil, maybe some cheese, things like that. Um, and then we'll have a control group of like intermittent fasting. We're all gonna consume the meal, um, excluding the intermittent fasting group. All meals will be matched on calories and macronutrients. Um, sorry, not macronutrients, but they'll be matched on calories. And then four hours later, we're going to invite them to a buffet meal. Um, and we're just going to say, thank you for joining the study. Um, as a thank you, we're going to give you a buffet meal to have. And then we're secretly going to monitor sort of what foods they consume, how many, how many calories they consume to see if we can tighten up the prescription um, and the recommendations for what people should be having um, at breakfast time to sort of help with the, the prevention of obesity and long-term weight gain. Yeah, you, you've just ruined your blind control study there by, by announcing it. <laughs> but uh, ho hopefully hopefully nobody listens though. Uh, but, but it is interesting that um, what you've said about the the, the intake of, of, say, higher or lower calorie-dense foods like fruits and vegetables, and that's what people who perhaps don't necessarily understand uh, nutrition that that much think that they just associate fruits and vegetables with weight loss. And um, what it is actually true that you you know if you eat more fruits and vegetables, you, you probably will be in a calorie deficit if you hadn't had much before. It's not necessarily because of the actual food groups themselves, but the properties that are contained within those groups. So low calorie density, because. I remember towards the end of my prep and I, I, you know, almost puke in my mouth when I think of it now, but I used to make protein fluff with like, uh, it was basically frozen strawberries, whey protein, uh, or casein protein, uh, some quark and then also ice and xanthan gum and just like put it in an electric whisk, uh, and just leave it for like 10 minutes. And it would be literally about two kilos of less than 200 calories and uh a lot of food and and, and like that quote unquote isn't necessarily healthy because it's like you know what people would think there's artificial sweeteners not that i have any issue with them but it's not fruits and vegetables so it's just it's it it's interesting that or i guess people just think that fruits and vegetables equal weight loss but it's more so seeking out foods that have 
um, those properties of low calorie density, uh, high viscosity, um, which isn't necessarily always fruits and vegetables. That doesn't mean we're I'm trying to tell people not to eat them, but it's just that there's other ways to to get there, and you become a lot more creative when you actually are faced with those problems at the end of like a contest prep. Absolutely. So Jackson, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find more about you? Yeah, the best place to get me is on Instagram, just at Jackson Pios. So anything I'm doing with regards to training, research, client stuff, um, that'll all be pumped through my Instagram. Um, for the more nerdy people, uh, you can hit me up on ResearchGate, um, just searching my name and, and you'll be able to keep track with uh, purely just what's going on um, at my lab and what's going on with my research and, and latest publications. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jackson. As you probably know now that there's not a whole lot of research on actual refeeds or even diet breaks within the context of people who are looking to improve body composition. Speaking for myself, I know that refeeds and even diet breaks are something that I have done in the past and certainly will do uh, with clients and also with myself. Just purely for that psychological point of view, if you're thinking about a long-term diet or even a short enough diet where there's a couple of weeks involved, it's often easier when you feel like there's a day at the end of the week or two days at the end of the week or a week every couple of months or so where you just don't have to diet anymore. You're just in a calorie maintenance phase or perhaps even a slight surplus just to kind of get your bearings back, give you that motivation to then go back in and start pushing further to get leaner. So without these diet breaks without these refeeds essentially you're just going to be dieting non-stop and yes you might get the same results by just dieting non-stop without any refeeds or any diet breaks but is that something that you're going to be able to sustain or is it something that you're going to enjoy over a long period of time if you're doing something like a contest prep so it's always important to think about this in in context of what we already know and what other information is available but if you do have any other questions from for us please do reach out to us. Jackson has already given some of his details. You can get them in the show notes and you can always reach me. My details are in the show notes as well. But until next time, uh, have a great week, weekend, or whenever you're listening to the show.